Well, good morning again, Harvest. Happy Easter. If you are new or visiting, my name is Calvin. I am the lead pastor here. So thankful that you are hanging out with us this morning. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians 15. So whether it's on your phone or an app or you brought your Bibles with you, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. We're going to jump around a little bit, but uh, just so excited to open God's Word with you and celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. And I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, but the fact that Jesus is alive is a really big deal for us at this church because in all honesty, everything hinges on this truth, this idea, did Jesus actually raise from the dead? And uh, this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, check it out, starting at verse 1. Look what he has to say. He says, now... I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So so Paul's starting off this section by saying, listen, I'm just going to remind you what I preached to you. This is the gospel. This is what our faith is. This is what we believe. If we don't have this, we don't have anything. He's like, I'm about to remind you. The most important thing. Look at verse 3. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He's saying the most important thing is faith in the reality that Jesus died for our sins, that he was actually dead and buried. And then three days later, he rose again. Church, look at me. Easter is the celebration that what Paul said just happened actually happened in history, that it's true. We are not here today remembering and celebrating a fairy tale. We are not here today talking about a myth. We are not hoping that Jesus might have raised from the dead. We are not um, believing in vain that maybe this happened without evidence or, or proof. We're saying, no, Jesus is alive and he's reigning and it's real and it happened. And he's ruling and reigning as we speak. Uh, If you have notes, if you grabbed one of those cards when you came in, I titled this message, The Most Offensive Act. And uh, here's why I say that, because I believe that the most offensive thing Jesus ever did while he was on earth was that he rose from the dead. And here's why I believe that, because here's the thing, um, Jesus said some offensive things when he taught. Right? People hated him for the things he taught. In fact, the religious leaders in Israel put him to death for the things he taught. But that wasn't the most offensive thing Jesus did. It wasn't what he taught. It wasn't who Jesus hung out with, even though that offended people. Jesus would hang out with the unclean, with the lepers, with the tax collectors, with with, with prostitutes, with idolaters. And in fact, the, the religious leaders, again, they created these false rumors that Jesus was a partier and a drunkard and an immoral person because he kept running with the crowd that it wasn't acceptable to run with. But that wasn't the most offensive thing he did. It wasn't who he claimed to be. 
right? Think about it. There have been many people throughout history who have claimed to be God. And they have lived, they've created some sort of following, they've died, and they have largely been forgotten by history. So it's not that, because many have done that. The most offensive thing Jesus did was raise from the dead, because that act, or even the claim by his followers that that happened, here's the thing, it forces the issue on all of us. The fact that Christianity asserts that Jesus is alive, it means that we can't sit passively in the background and just observe his life and be like, wow, he was a cool dude. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, it forces us to make a decision. The big idea for this morning, it's this, it's simple. It's that the resurrection of Jesus Christ demands we make a decision. We have to make a decision about this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Too much is on the line. It either happened or it didn't. He is either Lord and reigning or he is dead. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, you're not off the hook this morning. You have to make a choice. And there are some of you in here today where you're like, man, I don't come to church that much. I'm just here because grandma made me come. Like, why are you putting this on me? Hey, listen, I'm sorry, you're on the hook. No one, look at me, no one can leave this room this morning without making a decision. Do you believe the claim that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive, or is it all a lie? And this leaves us with three options. Let's get into it. Option one, Jesus never rose, and he's actually dead. Let's talk about that, that Jesus was a good teacher, he was a good guy, he created a following, but ultimately he wasn't God, he died, his followers hid the body, and he's not alive. And here's the interesting thing, Paul doesn't shy away from this, he speaks to it in verse 14. Look what he says. He says, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul's like, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then I chose a really dumb profession. None of it means anything. It's all worthless if Christ hasn't been raised. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, if Jesus is not alive, our faith is futile. It's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. It it, it is based on a lie. There's no power to it. We are wasting our time and energy and our lives serving a God that isn't real. It's futile. It says that we're hopeless, that there is no forgiveness for our sins. We still stand condemned before God. And those in our life who we love, who we died, we will never see them again. They have also perished. We are without hope. And then the last thing we see is this isn't true, that we're to be pitied above all people. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then the rest of the community should look at us and be like, oh, those poor, sweet, dumb people. Worshiping a God that is dead. 
or if I can put it in 21st century terms, if Jesus is not alive, we've all been catfished. Do you know what that term is, catfished? Uh, when online dating started, there was this phenomenon that happened as people realized that they could make a profile of themselves that wasn't real. So what would happen is, is a, a sweet girl would start dating a guy and he, he, they would start dating online and they would text and they would talk and this guy uh, on Facebook would be a 22-year-old good-looking dude from California. And then all of a sudden she would find out he's not a good-looking 22-year-old dude from California. He's a very not good-looking dude, 48-year-old from Arkansas, right? And, and there was a whole show based on this because when you hear these stories, like you feel bad for the, the sweet girl that got lied to. You're like, oh, that poor sweet girl, she got played. Well, listen, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, that's us. We should be pitied. We were sold a bill of goods that wasn't real. We were catfished. There is no hope in this life. It's all worthless, and I love how honest Paul is about it. But look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. One of the most beautiful lines in the entire Bible the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, so if option one is, is he isn't alive, option two is he is alive and he rose. He rose from the dead and he is alive today. Paul's saying he is alive. This fear that Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, he's telling this church, you don't have to worry about it. It didn't happen. He is alive. Here is why the resurrection is so offensive, because if Jesus rose from the dead, that means he is actually everything he claimed to be, that he is God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That the living God entered our brokenness, that he lived a perfect sinless life and died for our sins. It's all true if Jesus is alive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. If Jesus is alive, we have to accept that as reality. That every other world religion, putting our hope in ourselves, the denial of God, all of that leads to condemnation. That there is one pathway through the forgiveness of our sins, and that is through Jesus Christ. It's only Him. If He's alive, it has to be true. If He's dead, we don't have to take it very seriously. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is coming again. Jesus told his fathers, he goes, I'm coming again to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus, when he comes back, he is not coming as a lamb uh, willingly being led to the slaughter. He is coming back as a fierce lion to judge all mankind. That is our reality. That is our future. We will stand before the risen Jesus Christ and give an account if he is alive, if this is true. That he is in heaven right now preparing a place with, for us to dwell with him forever. That he is ruling and reigning on the right hand of God the Father right now. All of it's true if he's alive. Everything hinges on one thing, church. It's the resurrection. Christianity, it's not a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's not a way of thinking or living. Does it involve those things? Sure. But Christianity rests on one historical moment. 
that Jesus rose from the dead and paid the penalty for our sin, defeating sin and death in the process. Some of you might not know me, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, Cal, like, how can I be sure? And I think that's a really valid question. Like, you're like, Cal, you seem very confident about a thing that happened thousands of years ago that you didn't see, you weren't around for it, and I wasn't around for it. Well, like, how can I be sure that this actually happened? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about some proofs of the resurrection. There's many. I just want to talk about three primary proofs of the resurrection. Here's the first. The first proof is fulfilled prophecy. Look at verse 3 again. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See that phrase he repeats over and over again? He's saying, in accordance with the Scriptures. What Paul's saying is that everything that happened to Jesus was promised thousands of years before it actually happened. That we have written testimony, prophecy from the Old Testament telling us who this Christ would be, and there were dozens and dozens of prophecies about Jesus. Some of you might be asking, what's a prophecy? Well, a prophecy is a promise that was made well before uh, about something that would happen in history. And there were dozens and dozens of specific prophecies about Jesus. Every single one of them he fulfilled. And they were prophecies given all over the world in different cultures at different time periods, some thousands of years before Jesus lived. There were prophecies about where he would be born. There were prophecies about his family line. It couldn't just be anyone. He had to come from the line of David. There's specific things like his family would flee to Egypt, how he would die, how he would be betrayed, that he would be rejected by the very people he came to save, what kind of miracles he would do. All of these things, promise after promise after promise that he perfectly fulfilled. Do you know that they've done mathematical calculations that that have looked at what are the odds that one man could fulfill all of these prophecies? That if you take everything that was promised about Jesus how specific they are. What are the odds that one person could do it? And here's what they came up with. The the odds that one man could fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies, which Jesus did, it it comes out to one in 10 with another 145 zeros behind it. One out of 10, but with another 145 zeros behind it. I don't even know what that number is. It's too big. It's bigger than a Google. Like you could spend the rest of your life just counting and you wouldn't sniff that number. It's a mathematical impossibility. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, but how do I know that those prophecies are legit? I've got a lot of questions. Well, I don't have the time to get into all of it, but here's what I promise you. There has never been a book in world history that has been more scrutinized, studied, and held up to academic rigor than the Bible And its authenticity has passed the test of time with flying colors. We know when books of the Bible were written. We know when these promises were made. And we know by whom. All of it happened in history. There's fulfilled prophecy. How are you going to answer that? Here's another one. Eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 5. Here's what it says. It says, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
And then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as one to untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See what Paul's saying goes, not only is it fulfilled prophecy, but like a ton of people saw him alive. He's like all sorts of people saw him. You don't have to take my word for it. Go ask the others that saw him alive. He says his family saw him alive. Here's what blows my mind. James, the brother of Jesus, went to his death claiming that Jesus was the sinless, perfect son of God. And here's why that blows my mind, because if anyone knows that we're not perfect, it's our family, right? Like they know us too well. Like if I were to come out on stage and claim that I was sinless and perfect, I have a brother, he would be the one that would rush the stage, tackle me and bring me to the hospital because I'm really sick. He just knows me too well. Do me a favor, turn to the person next to you and say, you're not perfect. Right, we know this. All right, how about this? Even to up the ante, turn to the person on the other side of you and say, not even close. Right, like we know the weaknesses of our family intimately, but here's the thing. James didn't say that about Jesus. He said, no, he is the son of God and he defeated death and he's alive and he's perfect and he was beaten and brutally murdered because he wouldn't renounce Jesus. Jesus appeared to his friends. How do you explain this? That Peter, the same guy on Good Friday who he denied knowing Jesus, cowered, ran away, abandoned Jesus at the moment he needed him the most. In just a few short weeks later, he's on a rooftop in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost when everyone's gathering in the city shouting that Jesus is Lord. How does someone change like that other than the reality that he knew it because he saw Jesus, talked with him, hung out with him. He was convinced that Jesus was alive. Fear and shame and cowardice was replaced with boldness because he saw Jesus, that his followers... 500 at a time. Listen, people were crucified and fed to lions. And and listen, not for money, not for power, not for recognition, because they swore on their life that Jesus was alive. They'd seen him. And then even his enemies. See how Paul ends that passage? He says, even one as untimely born as me. He goes, I was an enemy of the church. I hated Christianity. I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, I made it my mission to make Christians suffer. And and listen, I didn't read a book and have it change my mind. I didn't have a conversation with a disciple that, that made me think differently. He goes, Jesus appeared to me. And he said, Paul, what are you doing? I am the Messiah. I am the one you've spent your whole life looking for and can't seem to find. Why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting me? He goes, I don't deserve it. I hated Jesus, but I saw him and he's alive and I would bet my life and ministry on it. How do you account for it if he's not actually alive? Then here's a third proof, and I actually think this one might be the most powerful It's the testimony of transformed lives, the continued testimony of transformed lives. Look at me. I think that one of the most compelling arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that 2,000 years later, there have been billions and billions and billions of people who would go to their death if it required 
saying, Jesus is alive and he's Lord and I've experienced his presence and power in my life. The Bible says that his spirit testifies to our spirit that he is indeed the son of God, that when two or more are gathered together, Jesus gathers with us. So can I have you help me, church? Um, in, in case some people are still on the fence, do me a favor. If you know for certain that you've experienced the presence of Jesus in your life and in your story, raise your hand. Okay, keep them up. Look around. How do you explain this? Are all of us crazy? You can put them down now. Thank you. No, Jesus is alive, that he's been near to us in the dark seasons, that we have felt his presence and spirit dwell in our hearts, that he has changed us in only a way a supernatural risen Savior could change us. This cannot happen unless Jesus is alive. And to reject this means that there's a massive burden of proof that's on you, not on me this morning. You have to make a choice. Okay, but here's the unfortunate thing. Unfortunately, there's a third option that in parentheses I put the insane option. And that's this. It's to believe that Jesus is alive and still not allow him to be Lord. That Jesus is alive but still not Lord. We want just enough of Jesus to feel secure about our eternity, but we are unwilling to lay down our crown and our kingdom. We still want to be the functional Lord of our lives. We want to do what we think is right, what we think is best. We want to live for our glory, our renown, our name, our kingdom right now. You see, church, here's what we get so wrong about sin. When I say the word sin, what pops into your mind is the bad things people do. Sexual immorality, lying, scamming people, swearing, becoming angry, losing self-control. We think of bad things. And listen, that's only the symptom of the sin problem that we actually have in our heart. At the fundamental root of sin is wanting our kingdom our way. We want to be the functional Lord of our life. We don't want the crown that Jesus has given us. We want our own, and that crown leads to death. Our problem is that we make weak, futile, and hopeless gods, don't we? We want to put our hope in ourselves, our kingdom, but here's the truth. No one lets you down more than you do. No one's more inconsistent with you than you are with yourself. We hurt people and, and, and we do the things we don't want to do and we're weak and we're frail and we get sick and we can be gone in a moment. We are not worthy of our own worship because we are not God. So when we put our hope in ourselves, it only leads to a cycle of misery. But we've made this choice. The problem with our culture, the problem with secular humanism is it tells us to trust in ourselves that we can be the authority, that we are enough. But secular humanism can't answer the big questions our heart asks. Why is there pain and suffering? What is the point? What is the purpose? Why? Listen, if Jesus is dead, if God is not real, why does our heart long for peace and joy and love and unity? Why? It's because we were created in the image of that God. There's no explanation outside that God has bestowed his image onto us. Why are things so obviously broken? We know this world's broken. Why do we know we were made for more? I love Proverbs 14. It says this. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end 
is the way to death. That we think in our own strength, in our own power, that we can be in control, that we know what's best for us, that we know what's right. It seems right, but it leads to death. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus, church. He has this way of when we actually lay down our crown and allow him to be Lord, put him in his rightful place, he has the ability to give us everything our hearts were longing for and looking for all along. That's how good he is. And to prove it, I want to show you a video. Check out this story from a family in our church. I had the huge house. I had the expensive cars in the garage. We had like, you know, 15 dental offices, about 35 to 45 doctors that I was responsible for motivating, inspiring, and transforming lives. And I started like getting into self-help. You know, it's all within you. You just gotta be more motivated. You gotta work harder. And all these like philosophers that were talking about, it's all within you, turn to yourself. And then got into just crazy stuff. Like I started becoming like certified coach on all that stuff was speaking across the nation. I was um, hired by a $10 billion company to go out there and, you know, talk about business. And I was able to get to the point where I didn't have to go and I didn't have to see patients. We uh, rented a place in the Keys. I drove down in my fancy car and I listened to motivational videos. She had to drive down with all the kids in her minivan. And then we get down there and I couldn't figure out why she's so miserable. Like, I just brought her to paradise. Here I'm living out this self-fulfilled, you know, success picture, and I think I'm giving her every she, everything she wants, and at that time, completely ignoring my family. We were on date night one time, and uh, 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 my wife looked at me and she was like, um, I, I don't enjoy being with you anymore. I was kind of floored because I thought I was providing everything. You know, I thought I was the king. We lived a comfortable lifestyle, but what I really wanted was a leader for our family. And he was more interested in leading the workspace. I would take my kids to church and then he would like, I was like, are, are you gonna go with us? No, I don't feel like it today. So it was just a real apathetic, viewpoint of his spirituality. I thought it was the end, basically. At the point I was in my life, I was like, I would rather be alone raising my kids than have this influence. I didn't really know what else to do, but I'd seen the Gravelins Got at Work video. And um, I didn't know them, but I was just like, I want that. Like, I, we, like, that's our last, res that is our only hope and resort is if we can put God in the middle of our family, maybe it would change him. But I knew that I couldn't because I had tried everything. So I reached out to Don and then I kind of had to trick him to go <laughs> to dinner um, with the four of us. So we sat at the country club with Don and Marty and he was just um, uh, talking about how you know, he was growing so much there. So I'm like, I want that growth, that sounds awesome. And then we started Soul Care from there. As my marriage was collapsing, um, 
so now my, my business is starting to collapse too. Um, and, you grew too fast. And I, I grew way too fast. Like we were buying a dental office every like three months and all of a sudden, you know, the cash flow is, is diving down. And at the same time, you know, I was really big into CrossFit. I was working out constantly. I was the strongest I had ever been in my life. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm starting to have back problems. So now in between patients, I would go lay down like face first and then I would come and I, for like five minutes and then I would, I would rotate over and lay on my back. Um, so I was losing my, I lost my health. I was losing my business. I was three months away from bankruptcy. Um, um, we had to sell the house um, and figure something else out. Um, I was losing all my friendships, but at the same time, uh, I was, I was start, starting to follow the Lord. Um, and I remember I was in a, a service. In Dave's sermon, he said, the Lord will discipline you and you never know, he may put you face down in submission. And at that time, I was rotating five minutes face down, five minutes face up, five minutes face down. And man, I remember it was like a rush hit me. I'm like, that's exactly what the Lord is doing. He is disciplining me right now and he loves me and he wants me to just turn, turn to him completely. And I got baptized. I got baptized that day. I was not expecting to get baptized, but I did. I got baptized. And I remember after baptism, like, it was like a refreshing feeling. I can't explain it. But like, I had felt like a weight had lifted off of me. The next day, my health was completely restored. My back was fine. I was fine. Call that whatever you want. You I think it's a miracle. Yeah. I had three bulging discs with an MRI to prove it. Slowly, things started like being restored. Um, my marriage was getting a lot better. We found some, we found a common ground, which was Jesus. And we were reading the Bible together and we were quoting, quoting scripture together. We were doing, um, you know, we were doing our counseling. We were, we were doing that together. Because I was humbled so much, my friendship started coming back. When I noticed my heart needed to change is when I was putting all my hope in him being my leader instead of Jesus taking the central role in relationship. And when I focused on my avenue and my personal relationship with God, my grace towards him became more evident and I was more willing to forgive Elias and also I didn't have his heart of a heart toward him. I saw him engaged in soul care and then he wanted to go and learn and then it didn't just stay in the counseling room. He brought it home and was actively incorporating it within our family life and in our marriage. And then that's when I was like, okay, God really does have his heart. And I could see the tiny little changes building up over a long, longer period of time. And then my trust was restored. The hope is in the Lord, not in yourself. Don't try to get more motivated in yourself because you'll fail. A lot of men, they get into thinking about their kingdom and they forget that you have no control. And when I released all control to the Lord, that's when my life was transformed.
God's amazing, isn't he? And um, I think it's just fitting right now to ask that question that Elias just ended that video with. Whose kingdom are you living for? Can you honestly say that you worship Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you believed? I think there's some of us in here this morning who maybe we've grown up in the church. Maybe we're really, really good at saying the right things and going through the motions and playing the game. But if we were even just 5% honest with our hearts right now, we know, man, I have never once laid down my crown and my dreams and my glory and put my hope and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to make a decision today. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. All right, church, how do you have faith in Jesus Christ? How are you saved? Well, here's the first thing you have to do. You have to get to a point of repentance, that Jesus died on the cross for a reason because of our sin. We have to get to a point where we acknowledge that we have rejected God, that we have lived for our own glory, that we have gone our own way, and by the way, have chosen that over and over and over again. We have to be honest about our condition, that we are the problem. Have you done that? Romans 10.9 says this, says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? So we have to repent and then we have to believe that Jesus was God and that he was raised from the dead. You have to make a decision on the resurrection. There is no life without the resurrected Jesus. There is no Christianity if Jesus did not, in fact, physically raised from the dead. Have you made a decision? Do you believe? But then you also have to confess, and this is what's interesting about Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Not just that he's God, not just that he's alive, not just that he's risen, but that he is Lord. It's not something we can just say with our mouth. It's something that our lives have to communicate. That he is king, that Jesus, that you are good and you are sovereign and you are in control and you are not wasting a moment of my pain and suffering in my life. That you are the good shepherd that is leading us to green pastures and still waters. That you are ruling and reigning and your plan is good and it's right. And whatever you call me to do, I'll do it. How you call me to love my kids, that's how I'm going to love my kids. How you call me to lead my spouse and my family, that's how I'm going to do it. How you call me to to interact with those in the workplace, that's what I'm going to do. How I love my enemies and my neighbors and pour my life out as a blessing for others. God, I'll do it because you did it for me and you loved me when I didn't deserve it. And you are Lord and your way leads to life. Is that you? None of us are going to be perfect. We know that. But do you have that desire? Do you have that fierce love 
for Jesus that says, I know that he is God and that he is Lord and I am tying my identity and my hope and my eternity to this truth. There's some of you that I'm going to ask you to make that decision right now. And some of you are thinking, all right, so how, how do I start this process of following Jesus as Lord? Well, we want to help you, and we're going to make it very, very simple. We're going to start with the first thing Jesus tells us to do after we are saved, and that's to come forward and get baptized. When Jesus was on uh, the mount getting ready to ascend back into heaven, the last thing he told his followers was this. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Peter preached at Pentecost, the first sermon in the history of the church, it said 3,000 people were saved in a day and they all got baptized that day. That in scripture, there is this clear picture that there is a believer's baptism that we make where we identify with Jesus after putting our trust in him. What baptism is, is as you stand in this tank that's right behind me, you, you tell people publicly that you love Jesus, we dunk you in the water to, to identify with the death of Jesus that he died for our sins, and then we bring you back out to say, but I have also been raised with Christ, that I am forgiven, that I am his, and then when I die, I will be raised to heaven to be with him and his followers. It's publicly identifying yourself with Jesus. Jesus says it starts there. And listen, some of you are like, man, I didn't come prepared for this. You don't have to be prepared. We have thought about everything for you. Listen, in the back, we have clothes for you to change into. We have blow dryers and hair products to make your hair look pretty after you get out of the tub. We have face stuff for you. We've got every hygiene product you could possibly imagine. We have thought of it all. And listen, I don't know if you've been saved for 30, 40 years or if you're making this decision now. We've thought of everything. We just need you to come forward and act in obedience. Another obstacle some of you might have is, well, I've already been baptized, but I was baptized as a child. And here's what I want you to know. I think that that's awesome. We do something a little bit different at our church. We call them baby dedications, but it's the same heartbeat. And what that means is, is that your parents came and they brought you before the church when you were a baby. And they're like, we want this child to know and love Jesus. I think that's amazing. But can we agree that infant baptism, it's something that your parents did on your behalf. What believer's baptism is, what I'm calling you to right now, is a decision you are making for yourself. It's you publicly identifying that the very thing your parents prayed for, it's a reality. It's not stepping on what your parents did for you at all. It's actually an answer to their prayer. Don't let that stop you. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, even if you've been saved 30 years, don't stop or don't make an excuse to not do it. Let's honor the Lord by doing what he calls us to. Some of you are like, well, I really want my family to be here and celebrate with me. When I get baptized and they're not here, I wasn't planning on it. I don't know if I should. Um, that's not a good enough reason. And here's why. Um, because where there's some negatives with the internet when it comes to catfishing and, and those type of things, there's also some really positives of the internet. And here's what that means. This service is going to be recorded and it will be online on our website um, this afternoon. And that means that you can send the testimony of you getting baptized. Your friends and loved ones and family will see it and they'll celebrate with you and they're going to be so excited. Don't let that stop you. Some of you are like, well, I don't know how long it's going to take. I've got Easter lunch plans. 
That's a really bad reason. Grandma will wait, I promise. She'll still be there when you get done. Um, some of you are, are wrestling with, do I come forward and get baptized? And here's your reason. I'm really nervous. And I'm scared, and this is a step of faith. And listen, I hear that, and I feel that. My daughters, I had the privilege of baptizing them last night. One of them in the green room before we got baptized in tears because she's nervous. I get that it can be scary, but here's the thing. What a better way to start following the Lord than taking a step of faith that say, God, even though I don't necessarily want to do this, I'm going to lay down my crown, and I'm just going to follow you, and I'm going to trust you. Listen, what better way to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for you to come forward and say, he did it for me, and I'm part of this. And because Jesus is alive, I know I have eternal life. The time to come is now. If you haven't been baptized as a follower of Jesus, I am boldly asking you right now, don't wait, don't hesitate, follow what the Lord is calling you to do. Lay down your crown. Don't let pride be a thing that wins. Listen, every time we do these baptism services, someone comes to me a week later and is like, I should have done it. I knew I should have in the moment and I chose not to and I'm kicking myself. Don't be that person this week. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And then um, my wife is standing right over there, Mary. If you want to come forward and get baptized, all you have to do is come up and go to her. She'll bring you out those doors. We'll show you everywhere you have to go. We have people who are going to pray for you um, that will show you where to get changed. We'll give you everything you need. You just need to make the decision to do what the Lord asks. And I'm just praying and believing there's going to be a lot for us to celebrate in these coming moments. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for everything we have to celebrate. And, and God, I am just praying for boldness right now. And God, I know every time we have these services that there are people who are on the edge who are being convicted right now to take that step and the enemy is lying to them and they're hearing every reason why they shouldn't. But Jesus, you are alive. And that means you reign even over the lies of the enemy. Our hope is in you, our life is in you, our faith is in you. And God, I'm so excited to celebrate with our church family the testimony of lives you are continuing to change and transform. May this service be a unique moment and testimony to the power that your spirit is present with us, that you are alive. May we be a people whose light shines against the darkness. We love you and we need you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.